352, Chapter 32. Book Talk begins at 19 minutes and 44 seconds. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. I'm your host, Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 352, Nested. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. It feels like no time at all since I spoke to you. Perhaps it's because it's been no time at all in my world. And in my world, since last time I updated you on the move, absolutely nothing new has happened. However, this month, we have giveaways. We have the Stampington magazines, one copy of Stuffed, and two copies of Somerset Life. If you are interested in joining the raffle for these three magazines, please follow the giveaway link in the show notes at craftlit.com for episode 352. Good news for Craftlit. We got listed in the womeninpodcasting.org list, which is great because the more people who listen... The more people who subscribe, the less education writing I have to do, and the more audio I can edit and put out for you. The podcast reach is growing, because what with me being a chick and all, it's kind of nice to get listed with the other people. And uh, it turns out that Craftlet is one of the longest-running podcasts out there. So for those of you who've been listening since 2006... You need to give yourselves a pat on the back because you are as rare as I am. It's been kind of fun. I've been meeting more podcasters online lately. I'm not going to be able to go to this. There's a thing. What is it? Podcast movement. You know, it's just one one thing too many in a year of moves. I kind of don't want to leave home for a while, nor could I afford it if, if I tried right now. Moves are expensive and a pain and annoying. But I will be popping up around the web a little bit more for for the rest of the year, partially because of cognitive anchoring and partially because of the podcast and partially because of Defarge. So I will alert you when things are going on that you can then share because sharing is caring. And that's kind of, it's kind of exciting stuff. So that was fun. And then a very serious question, actually. One of our listeners wrote in, and said she works in human resources in, in HR, the people who hire hire and fire and handle all of that craziness for companies. And they have some people working for them who they would like to promote. These are people who have proven track records, they are good workers, and they are known quantities. But they are people who graduated from homeschool schools. The question is not, what do we do? 
The question is far more technical than that. And so I'm putting this out to my homeschool parents. Is there any way to validate a homeschool diploma? The HR department, the company that they work for, has a rule that they must have a high school diploma. The homeschool diplomas need to be verified to verify the validity of the diploma and the coursework that they did. She said, there are those of us who wish very much to support this non-traditional schooling. There are those who always look at the negative side as well. And it makes the situation that much tougher when the diploma says Jones High School and it's signed by Mom Jones and Dad Jones. I had a couple of suggestions. I am not going to say what I came up with right now because I'm hoping that you'll come up with different stuff and I don't want to you know, sully the pot, as it were. If you have any ideas about objective outside ways to validate a homeschool diploma, please put those in the show notes. Um, Just make the subject line homeschool diploma, and that way we can track it really easily. Or if you have a longer statement that you would like to make and you want it to be private, please feel free to email me at heather at craftlit.com. And I will forward your mail to our listener who is in this quagmire. I mean, this is a really difficult situation because when you are in HR, you can't just kind of change the rules to fit a few people who you like and who are great. But then other people get wind of it and they're like, why can't you change the rules for me? So they have to tread lightly. And information from actual homeschoolers or homeschooling parents who've come across this problem before uh, would be enormously helpful. So thank you very much in advance for your wisdom. On the crafty side of things, Moore's bags. During the crazy moveness, I wound up on Twitter late at night one night or early in the morning one morning when I couldn't sleep on either end. I can't remember because I wasn't sleeping and, and I was tired. And I came across a tweet from a Twitterer in the UK. And she runs a site called Moore's Bags, M-O-R-S-B-A-G-S. Her principle is simple. She's trying to get people to make and then give away grocery bags or shopping bags that can then replace plastic bags because the statistics on what the plastic bags do in the ocean are horrifying. And I had known all of this, but I kind of conveniently forgot all of this. And... It hasn't stopped me from, you know, the few times a year that I get a six-pack of something and it comes with those plastic rings. You know, I'm very diligent. I always cut all of the plastic rings so that they can't get lodged around the necks of any seabirds or fish or anything like that. But the plastic bag thing, I often forget to take the other bags with me into the grocery store, which is totally embarrassing because I should know better, but I don't. And This Moore's bag idea kind of spoke to me because I thought maybe if I made the silly thing, I'd be more likely to remember it, which I think is turning out to be true. Anyway, there is a website, which I have linked to from the show notes at episode 352. And at that website, there are very, very simple step-by-step instructions and a video tutorial for how to make your own bag. And then you go to the website and let them know how many bags you've made and given away. And the tally on this website is extraordinary. So many people have made these bags. It's awesome. And I thought, hmm, this is the kind of thing I think Craftlet listeners would be interested in. One of the things she does have is pods. Pods of people who get together 
and make these bags. And then it's kind of like yarn bombing. They go out and they give the bags away for free to people who are, you know, shocked and amazed and pleasantly surprised. And wow, I get this for free. It's a great way to use fabric that's left over or fabric that you decided once you got it home, you kind of didn't really want to use. It's good for all of that. And I was thinking, perhaps, about making a craftlet pod. And then we could all put our numbers in together. She also has uh, Moore's Bags labels. And I've been thinking, perhaps I will I will just get a bunch of those. And then if you write to me and say, hey, I've got five bags, I'll just stick five labels into an envelope and send them to you. And so since I was thinking, perhaps I should do this for Craftlet, I went ahead and did it for Craftlet. So now if you go to the website, mooresbags.com, which you can, again, reach from the Craftlet show notes at craftlet.com, episode 352, you can go and search for our pod. Our pod is listed as being located on Earth. <laughs> and we meet online. Because I went recently and looked at the geographical map version of the Craftlet statistics. And we have listeners on every continent. Which is pretty darn cool. So, you know, I couldn't put... Sheffield. I couldn't put New Hope. I couldn't put Chicago. I, I put the earth because we stretch all over the earth, which just, it makes the world smaller and less scary. And, and every time somebody complains around me in life about people, uh, I always say, yes, but you know, Craftlet listeners, <laughs> there is hope because there are marvelous, wonderful people, and I know so many of them because of the podcast. So, congratulations you for being you. And if you have ever wanted to sew, but have felt a little intimidated, perhaps, at the prospect of cutting and measuring and pinning and all of that, I think this is a fantastic thing to do. And if you have children, this is a nice, simple pattern that can help you help them learn how to sew. And I can tell you in all seriousness, when I was at theater school at UCLA, the class that the guys appreciated the most by the time we were done was the costuming class because they all learned their way around a sewing machine and a needle and thread. They could tailor their own stuff if they wanted to by the time we were done with that class. They could sew on a button. They could do everything except darn socks. And that, you know, is mine. And in other craftiness, Gabby, one of our listeners, Gabby H on Twitter, she pinged me the other night to let me know that unlike the knit a sweater for a penguin debacle scam thing that doesn't really exist, she found an interesting San Francisco area article. The article is called Knitters Answer Wild Cares Call for Nests to Save Baby Birds. These are birds that have been have been pushed out of a nest or fallen out of a nest or have, for some other reason, lost track of their nest and their mother. And these workers at Wild Cares noticed that they were they were trying to keep the babies in small bowls, and uh, and to you know mimic the size and shape of a nest that way. And then they started noticing that the birds were actually not doing so well in these bowls. These were slick-sided bowls. And I think if I remember from the article I read it last week. 
one of the women who worked and volunteered for this group was a knitter. And she went, oh, I know. I'll knit a bowl. And so she did. And it was perfect. And so now people are knitting birdie nests to help save birds in. Baby birds. Little tiny baby birds. So if you are interested in what will be mindless, easy, in the round knitting, which means if you have never knit in the round before, this is an excellent way to practice and learn because if you screw up, it's not like the bird's going to come back and complain, right? This is a perfect opportunity. They have a pattern at their website. I am linking to the article as well as the main website so that you can find out about it and find out where to send nests if you do knit them and want to help support the little birdies. And before we move on to our book talk, book talk, I have some other book talk to share with you. Many of you know, love, and read everything by Rachel Heron, also known as Yarnagogo. Rachel's been on the podcast before. She's a friend of the podcast, and she is awesome. She's an awesome writer. She's an awesome person. She's an awful lot of fun to talk to. And she has audiobook versions of her books. Guess who is the narrator for her latest? That's right, Barbara Edelman, who you've been listening to every week here. I helped introduce the two of them, so I feel like a proud mama, but I'm so, so, so excited to be able to share that with you because two more fabulous people I couldn't have found to put together. I have linked to the book on Amazon, which then also has the link to Audible because Amazon owns everything now. And the link in the show notes, because it is an Amazon link, is one of those affiliate things where if you click through and you buy the book, Craftlet gets you know a little sliver of, of the money that you pay and that helps support the show. Anytime you see actually an Amazon link on the Craftlit website show notes, that is one of those things that you can do to support the show. And in fact, if you click through to the Rachel Heron book and you get that, and then you think, ooh, I also wanted to get mm, a Zentangle book. If you go off and continue to shop from that point on, anything you purchase during that particular shopping trip <laughs> online, that, that percentage still continues to come back to Craftlet and, uh, and pay the fees and make it easy to keep the show free and running forever and ever and ever because there is no shortage of fabulous books for us to read together. I'm starting to think about our next one. I know it seems strange, right? Like it feels like we just started this book, but no, we're more than halfway through. Yes, yes, and Bleak House, I think we only have eight chapters left. What? I know, because that's only 900 pages long. <laughs> How could it have gone by so quickly? We just finished, uh, let's see, two weeks ago, we just finished what would have been the 17th serial. And I swear to you, as many times as I've read and listened to this book, I am still not bored and in love with it. If you are new to Craftlet and don't know about the Bleak House thing, there's a, a premium subscriber stream and downloading subscriber option that gets you all the audio for Bleak House and if you stroll way back, it's a, geez, it's about a year ago, you will find a sneak peek episode 
of Bleak House. I think if you search the show notes for sneak peek or if you go to craftlit.libsyn.com slash podcast, which is the prettier Libsyn version of the Craftlit page and has a, a actually a picture of me in front of a whole lot of books in uh, at the top of that page. There's a very well hidden <laughs> search option in the upper right hand corner of that picture. Click in there and type in sneak peek and uh, one of the things that comes out of that search should be the sneak peek for Bleak House. There are also, I think there's a sneak peek for Canterville Ghost, which is a short and sweet little book that's in the shop. So that one's shop available. And I think there's a sneak peek for Alice in Wonderland. By the way, Alice in Wonderland, I am remastering right now to make it more audible, similar, a little bit and, and clean up some of the, the audio now that now that we have the, the new and better way to master and, and clean up the audio. I'm slowly trying to go back through time. I'm still working on Dracula, which is a lot. And uh, and anybody who already purchased Alice in Wonderland, whether it's the MP3 version or the video version and the MP3 version, I will be sending you a link to the newer version to download. So that will be coming to you as soon as Alice is fixed. And as we head into talk about our North and South chapter, I wanted to share with you my my most recent zeitgeist moment. There have been many, actually. I haven't kept track of all of them because a lot of them happened during the move where Elizabeth Gaskell came up or North and South came up or uh, the name Margaret Hale came up and I just, I couldn't remember all of them and I couldn't keep track of them all because I didn't always have paper near me. But... I went for a walk the other day while I was stuck on a particularly thorny problem in some of this curriculum that I'd been working on. And I haven't spent a whole lot of time walking around our, our new neighborhood. And it's it's fairly rural out here. So walking anywhere is walking walking a long distance in green and not very much else. And so I was walking back from, oh, seeing horses and violets and all sorts of fabulous things in people's fields. And I saw the backside of an historical marker or hysterical marker. And I thought, Ooh, I could learn something. So I walked around to the front and I looked up and this is what it says on the placard. And I will post the picture on the show notes so that you can see too what it said. The marker says, historic district known as Milltown 1727 and later Milton 1804, named Carversville, 1833. Historic Carversville Society established 1971. So dudes, I am living in Milton. (laughs) What are the chances? I mean, seriously, what are the chances? This is ridiculous. If we had, if all of us had nickels for every time there has been a kind of zeitgeist moment for us, Can you imagine how wealthy we would all be at this point? Oh my gosh. Loads of money. We'd be rolling in dough. It's just fabulous. But, but we have a chapter to get to. And I promised you last week's chapter was going to be kind of eh, and this week's chapter was going to be better. So let's get to it. Well, first, part of the reason why this week's chapter is so great is that it's three chapters. (laughs) I had originally thought, oh, I'll just do a quick podcast. And then I realized, no, I really can't do that to you because stuff happens. And 
you know, it's one of those situations where once the momentum starts, it would be the chapters where if you were reading this book in bed at night, you would finish chapter 32 and say, oh, well, that wasn't very long. And then you would flip ahead and you'd say, oh, well, the next chapter's not very long either. And by that time, you're hooked and there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to have to keep reading. And if you were in bed, you probably would even go past chapter 34 where we're stopping today. But I didn't want to belabor it too much and make an hour and a half long podcast. So chapter 32 is called Miss Chances, not Missed Chances, M-I-S-S-E-D, but M-I-S-C-H-A-N-C-E-S. Chapter 33 is called Peace, and chapter 34 is called False and True. And if you recall where we left off at the end of the last chapter... Frederick has decided that he will, in fact, leave in a hurry to avoid this nasty Leonard's guy from from the South who knows what he looks like, or at least looked like, and who would just love to get his hands on the reward money. Margaret has also figured out that she can probably leverage her relationship with Henry Lennox to get Frederick some honest legal advice. So, yay, there is hope that this situation may not last forever. And Frederick has let it be known that he is in love with a nice Catholic girl in Spain and really wants them to come visit and meet her and her black hair, her fabulous raven hair. And that's where we left off. And this chapter, you know, Gaskell went back into the text after it was published in Household Words, and she added these little epigrams at the beginning, quotations that she's selected from various poems and and books and and things like that. And the one at the beginning of this, there's a a footnote on it. The, The quote is not all that particularly interesting. It's, again, the chapter, first chapter we're doing today is called Mischances. And the quotation is, what? Remain to be denounced? Dragged, it may be, in chains? And this, I thought, wow, that's kind of a dramatic opening. This was written by Byron, Lord Byron, and, and the preface of this particular text says that this was a poetic drama, quote, neither adapted nor in any shape intended for the stage. <laughs> because, because Byron. That man cracks me up. There, someday I will really put my nose to the grindstone and we will do some epic tome that Byron wrote. Because he's not... He's not always funny, ha-ha, but he is always dry, witty, charmingly, rakishly funny. And that, that preface commentary gives you a slight, slight piece of what it's like to read Byron. So in this, this chapter, we now have to get Frederick out. We have to get him out. We know Leonard's is lurking. And the process of getting him on a train is a little tricky, right? Because you have to go in and buy a ticket. And he can't do that because that would put him out in public in light. Even if they go at nighttime, the oil lamps will be lit in the station. So Margaret's going to have to go in. Margaret's going to have to go get the ticket. Margaret's going to have to also be out in public at night. Now, I found I found the discussion in this chapter to be fabulous for a couple of reasons. One is everyone's attitude towards Margaret, and the other is Margaret's attitude towards Margaret. 
I think Gaskell had to walk a fairly delicate line on this one because we know Margaret is completely capable of handling anything at this point that life has thrown at her. I mean, she's everything has gone wrong. She's lost Bessie. She's lost her mother. She's losing her brother again. And her father's useless. And she's the one who's had to do everything for so long. But one of the things we really haven't seen her do in actual text, it's been alluded to, we've heard talk about it, is we haven't really seen her participate in commerce or any kind of actual transaction. And occasionally in Jane Austen books or occasionally in Dickens or or other texts of the time, occasionally you see people going into shops and you kind of hear the shop talk and you get some idea of how how women bought fabric or how you bought dry goods. And, and these are things that are so distant from us in certainly in the United States and, and even in, in other countries that I've I've visited. I suppose Italy Italy came the closest for me to some of these in some ways, more personable ways of conducting business, because in the United States, so much is is put out on the shelves and you just go get what you want and take it up to a counter and somebody checks you out, or now you can even check yourself out. But in, in Italy and in a lot of these, these older books, you, you have this, a certain amount of conversation that goes on because everything is behind the counter. If you've watched Selfridges on PBS, you see the same thing. Everything's kept behind the counter. And in fact, moving stuff away from the counter and out where people could look at it or, or ready-to-wear clothes were out and available for you to look at and touch and see in person closer to you than behind the counter. That was all very new. Well, Margaret's going to have to go buy a train ticket for Frederick. So they have to figure out how to accomplish that. That's one of the things that's going to have to happen. But in the process of doing that, I learned a little bit about how the trains ran and how the train stations were organized. So listen for that, because I thought it was kind of, it's just, you know, little throwaway stuff, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. And I just recently watched, for the first time, which is an embarrassment, I know, uh, The Station Agent, which if you haven't seen, it's a strange little film. It's a lovely little film. Uh, Peter Dinklage, who now everybody knows from Game of Thrones, it was, I think, the the first, not his first movie by a long shot, but I think it was the first movie that really made him a known quantity. And I didn't know this in advance, but I guess the part was written for him by the writer-director, their friends from way back. And so you, you kind of get the sense that there's some real Peter Dinklage going on in that film, but he has some conversations with other characters about how these little stations were run by the station agents on train lines. And it's a whole, it's a whole world that we've just lost in so, so many ways, at at least in the United States. I know there's train travel in in other countries is still uh, just as dominant as it used to be, but we've lost, we've lost a lot of that here, unfortunately. So chapter 32 is just this, this little, dealing with this little problem. And you're going to hear the word vaults V-A-U-L-T-S, referring to a pub or a beer house, a place to go and get a drink. So that's chapter 32, getting Frederick out. Chapter 33 then is coming back and, and having to deal with the empty. 
which is hard. And I, I don't know if you recall a throwaway line that Mr. Hale wanted Margaret to write to Mr. Bell. It's been a while since we've talked about Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell was, we just learned, Mr. Hale's groomsman at his wedding. So Mr. Bell goes way back. They were friends at Oxford. They've known each other forever. And Mr. Bell has a connection to Milton. That's how Mr. Hale found out about Milton in the first place. So we have this kind of circular connection between the Hales, Bell, Milton, back to Hale, back to Bell, back to Milton. And so now as we come back to regular life after Frederick, Mr. Bell needs to be involved uh, because Mr. Hale wanted him to accompany him to the funeral. Part of the reason why that was a discussion is because Mr. Mr. Hale says he can't do it by himself and Margaret can't go. It was a, a class thing. Victorian era women of their class just didn't go to funerals. And yet, listen to Margaret. Margaret, who was absolutely freaked out about seeing Bessie laid out after she passed away. Listen to Margaret in chapter 33. It's kind of marvelous. A term that has popped up in this book quite a few times and pops up again, but it's been a while since we talked about it, is fustian, fustian clothes. These are, are basically hard-wearing fabrics, linsey woolsey, more textured, knobby kinds of fabrics that would have been less expensive. So there's that. And then there's a reference to a song by Sting. No, there is a reference to something that I first heard of in a song by Sting. I think it's wrapped around your finger. Anyway, the line is, he was in the Charybdis of Passion. And Charybdis, if you've never seen this thing spelled, is C-H-A-R-Y-B-D-I-S. Scylla and Charybdis, Scylla spelled S-C-Y-L-L-A. Scylla was a... uh, a rocky shore, um, a place where if you tried to sail your ship near, you would run aground on the rocks. And Charybdis was a whirlpool. And so this is the quintessential stuck between a rock and a hard place thing. And it's been said many, many thousands of years, many different ways. Charybdis and Scylla, or as Sting said, caught between the Scylla and Charybdis. Um, This is just one way of saying it. So here she's using it differently, though. Instead of a caught between a rock and a hard place, she's saying he was in the Charybdis of passion, meaning he's in a whirlpool of passion, which is kind of cool. It's a nice way to say it. And that brings you to the end of chapter 33, then chapter 34. There's one kind of interesting throwaway line that I never would have looked at twice, but there's a footnote about it. Uh, Margaret will say that the Sunday Post intervened and interfered with their London letters. This is because the post office at this time in history was uh, remarkable for being on time and prompt. But there was talk right around this time in uh, I think it was in Parliament, there were certainly agitators saying nothing should be done on Sunday. Mail shouldn't be delivered. People shouldn't be working and delivering mail. But it wasn't a done deal. It hadn't been signed into law yet. So uh, somebody interfering with their mail and 
preventing the, the post from arriving is, is what Margaret's talking about. Then there's also a uh, another one of those throwaway lines. It's just a line of dialogue about a Cornish trick. And at first I thought this was something like, oh, this is going to be something like Welshing on a bed. And no, not even a little bit. Cornishmen were evidently famous for being good wrestlers. And a Cornish trick was a way to throw someone down. I think of it kind of like Cornish Taekwondo. <laughs> so that's all that is. And... With that, I'm going to launch you into listening to these three chapters back to back. I'll catch you on the flip side. Chapter 32. Mischances. What? Remain to be denounced? Dragged, it may be, in chains? Werner. All the next day they sat together, they three. Mr. Hale hardly ever spoke, but when his children asked him questions and forced him, as it were, into the present. Frederick's grief was no more to be seen or heard. The first paroxysm had passed over, and now he was ashamed of having been so battered down by emotion, and though his sorrow for the loss of his mother was a deep, real feeling and would last out his life, it was never to be spoken of again. Margaret not so passionate at first, was more suffering now. At times she cried a good deal, and her manner, even when speaking on indifferent things, had a mournful tenderness about it, which was deepened whenever her looks fell on Frederick and she thought of his rapidly approaching departure. She was glad he was going on her father's account, however much she might grieve over it on her own. The anxious terror in which Mr. Hale lived, lest his son should be detected and captured, far outweighed the pleasure he derived from his presence. The nervousness had increased since Mrs. Hale's death, probably because he dwelt upon it more exclusively. He started at every unusual sound, and was never comfortable unless Frederick sat out of the immediate view of anyone entering the room. Towards evening, he said, you will go with Frederick to the station, Margaret. I shall want to know he is safely off. You will bring me word that he is clear of Milton at any rate? Certainly, said Margaret. I shall like it if you won't be lonely without me, Papa. No, no. I should always be fancying someone had known him and that he had been stopped, unless you could tell me you had seen him off and go to the Outwood station. It is quite as near and not so many people about. Take a cab there. There is less risk of his being seen. What time is your train, Fred? Ten minutes past six, very nearly dark. So, what will you do, Margaret? Oh, I can manage. I am getting very brave and very hard. It is a well-lighted road all the way home, if it should be dark. But I was out last week much later. Margaret was thankful when the parting was over, the parting from the dead mother and the living father. She hurried Frederick into the cab in order to shorten a scene which she saw was so bitterly painful to her father, who would accompany his son as he took his last look at his mother. 
partly in consequence of this, and partly owing to one of the very common mistakes in the railway guide as to the times when trains arrive at the smaller stations, they found, on reaching outward, that they had nearly twenty minutes to spare. The booking office was not open, so they could not even take the ticket. They accordingly went down the flight of steps that led to the level of the ground below the railway. There was a broad cinder path diagonally crossing a field which lay alongside of the carriage road, and they went there to walk backwards and forwards for the few minutes they had to spare. Margaret's hand lay in Frederick's arm. He took hold of it affectionately. Margaret, I am going to consult Mr. Lennox as to the chance of exculpating myself, so that I may return to England whenever I choose, more for your sake than for the sake of anyone else. I can't bear to think of your lonely position if anything should happen to my father. He looks sadly changed, terribly shaken. I wish you could get him to think of the Cadiz plan for many reasons. What could you do if he were taken away? You have no friend near. We are curiously bare of relations. Margaret could hardly keep from crying at the tender anxiety with which Frederick was bringing before her an event which she herself felt was not very improbable, so severely had the cares of the last few months told upon Mr. Hale. But she tried to rally as she said, There have been such strange, unexpected changes in my life during these last two years that I feel more than ever that it is not worthwhile to calculate too closely what I should do if any future event took place. I try to think only upon the present. She paused. They were standing still for a moment, close on the field side of the stile leading into the road. The setting sun fell on their faces. Frederick held her hand in his and looked with wistful anxiety into her face, reading there more care and trouble than she would betray by words. She went on. We shall write often to one another, and I will promise, for I see it will set your mind at ease, to tell you every worry I have. Papa is... She started a little, a hardly visible start, but Frederick felt the sudden motion of the hand he held and turned his full face to the road, along which a horseman was slowly riding, just passing the very stile where they stood. Margaret bowed. Her bow was stiffly returned. Who is that? said Frederick, almost before he was out of hearing. Margaret was a little drooping, a little flushed as she replied. Mr. Thornton, you saw him before, you know. Only his back. He is an unprepossessing-looking fellow. What a scowl he has. Something has happened to vex him, said Margaret apologetically. You would not have thought him unprepossessing if you had seen him with Mamma. I fancy it must be time to go and take my ticket. If I had known how dark it would be, we wouldn't have sent back the cab, Margaret. Oh, don't fidget about that. I can take a cab here if I like, or go back by the railroad, when I should have shops and people and lamps all the way from the Milton Station House. Don't think of me. Take care of yourself. I am sick with the thought that Leonard's may be in the same train with you. Look well into the carriage before you get in. They went back to the station. Margaret insisted upon going into the full light of the flaring gas inside to take the ticket. 
Some idle-looking young men were lounging about with the station master. Margaret thought she had seen the face of one of them before, and returned him a proud look of offended dignity for his somewhat impertinent stare of undisguised admiration. She went hastily to her brother, who was standing outside, and took hold of his arm. "'Have you got your bag? Let us walk about here on the platform.' said she, a little flurried at the idea of so soon being left alone, and her bravery oozing out rather faster than she liked to acknowledge even to herself. She heard a step following them along the flags. It stopped when they stopped, looking out along the line and hearing the whiz of the coming train. They did not speak. Their hearts were too full. Another moment, and the train would be here. A minute more and he would be gone. Margaret almost repented the urgency with which she had entreated him to go to London. It was throwing more chances of detection in his way. If he had sailed for Spain by Liverpool, he might have been off in two or three hours. Frederick turned round, right facing the lamp, where the gas darted up in vivid anticipation of the train. A man in the dress of a railway porter started forward, a bad-looking man, who seemed to have drunk himself into a state of brutality, although his senses were in perfect order. "'By your leave, miss,' said he, pushing Margaret rudely on one side and seizing Frederick by the collar. "'Your name is Ale, I believe?' In an instant, how, Margaret did not see, for everything danced before her eyes, but by some slight of wrestling Frederick had tripped him up and he fell from the height of three or four feet, which the platform was elevated above the space of soft ground by the side of the railroad. There he lay. Run, run, gasped Margaret. The train is here. It was Leonard's, was it? Oh, run, I will carry your bag and she took him by the arm to push him along with all her feeble force. A door was opened in a carriage. He jumped in, and as he leant out to say, God bless you, Margaret, the train rushed past her, and she was left standing alone. She was so terribly sick and faint that she was thankful to be able to turn into the ladies' waiting room and sit down for an instant. At first... She could do nothing but gasp for breath. It was such a hurry, such a sickening alarm, such a near chance. If the train had not been there at the moment, the man would have jumped up again and called for assistance to arrest him. She wondered if the man had got up. She tried to remember if she had seen him move. She wondered if he could have been seriously hurt. She ventured out. The platform was all alight, but still quite deserted. She went to the end and looked over, somewhat fearfully. No one was there, and then she was glad she had made herself go and inspect, for otherwise terrible thoughts would have haunted her dreams. And even as it was, she was so trembling and affrighted that she felt she could not walk home along the road, which did indeed seem lonely and dark as she gazed down upon it from the blaze of the station. She would wait until the down train passed and take her seat in it. But what if Leonard's recognized her as Frederick's companion? She peered about before venturing into the booking office to take her ticket. 
there were only some railway officials standing about and talking loud to one another. So Leonard's has been drinking again, said one, seemingly in authority. He'll need all his boosted influence to keep his place this time. Where is he? asked another, while Margaret, her back towards them, was counting her change with trembling fingers, not daring to turn round till she heard the answer to this question. I don't know. He came in not five minutes ago with some long story or other about a folly dad, swearing awfully, and wanted to borrow some money from me to go to London by the next up train. He made all sorts of tipsy promises, but I had something else to do than listen to him. I told him to go about his business, and he went off at the front door. He's at the nearest vault, I'll be bound, said the first speaker. Your money would have gone there too, if you'd been such a fool as to lend it. Catch me. I knew better what his London meant. Why, he has never paid me off that five shillings. And so they went on. And now all Margaret's anxiety was for the train to come. She hid herself once more in the ladies' waiting room and fancied every noise was Leonard's step. Every loud and boisterous voice was his. But no one came near her until the train drew up when she was civilly helped into a carriage by a porter into whose face she durst not look until they were in motion. Chapter 33 Peace Sleep on, my love, in thy cold bed, never to be disquieted. My last good night, thou wilt not wake till I thy fate shall overtake. Dr. King Home seemed unnaturally quiet after all this terror and noisy commotion. Her father had seen all due preparation made for her refreshment on her return and then sat down again in his accustomed chair to fall into one of his sad waking dreams. Dixon had got Mary Higgins to scold and direct in the kitchen, and her scolding was not the less energetic because it was delivered in an angry whisper, for speaking above her breath she would have thought irreverent as long as there was anyone dead lying in the house. Margaret had resolved not to mention the crowning and closing of fright to her father. There was no use in speaking about it. It had ended well. The only thing to be feared was lest Leonard's should in some way borrow money enough to effect his purpose of following Frederick to London and hunting him out there. But there were immense chances against the success of any such plan, and Margaret determined not to torment herself by thinking of what she could do nothing to prevent. Frederick would be as much on his guard as she could put him, and in a day or two, at most, he would be safely out of England. I suppose we shall hear from Mr. Bell tomorrow, said Margaret. Yes, replied her father. I suppose so. If he can come, he will be here tomorrow evening, I should think. If he cannot come, I shall ask Mr. Thornton to go with me to the funeral. I cannot go alone. I shall break down utterly. Don't ask Mr. Thornton, Papa. Let me go with you, said Margaret impetuously. You, my dear, women do not generally go. No, because they can't control themselves. Women of our class don't go 
because they have no power over their emotions and yet are ashamed of showing them. Poor women go and don't care if they are seen overwhelmed with grief. But I promise you, Papa, that if you will let me go, I will be no trouble. Don't have a stranger and leave me out. Dear Papa, if Mr. Bell cannot come, I shall go. I won't urge my wish against your will if he does. Mr. Bell could not come. He had the gout. It was a most affectionate letter and expressed great and true regret for his inability to attend. He hoped to come and pay them a visit soon, if they would have him. His Milton property required some looking after, and his agent had written to him to say that his presence was absolutely necessary, or else he had avoided coming near Milton as long as he could. And now the only thing that would reconcile him to this necessary visit was the idea that he should see and might possibly be able to comfort his old friend. Margaret had all the difficulty in the world to persuade her father not to invite Mr. Thornton. She had an indescribable repugnance to this step being taken. The night before the funeral came a stately note from Mrs. Thornton to Miss Hale, saying that, at her son's desire, their carriage should attend the funeral if it would not be disagreeable to the family. Margaret tossed the note to her father. Oh, don't let us have these forms, said she. Let us go alone, you and me, papa. They don't care for us, or else he would have offered to go himself and not have proposed this sending an empty carriage. I thought you were so extremely averse to his going, Margaret, said Mr. Hale in some surprise. And so I am. I don't want him to come at all, and I should especially dislike the idea of our asking him. But this seems such a mockery of mourning that I did not expect it from him. She startled her father by bursting into tears. She had been so subdued in her grief, so thoughtful for others, so gentle and patient in all things, that he could not understand her impatient ways tonight. She seemed agitated and restless, and at all the tenderness which her father in his turn now lavished upon her, she only cried the more. She passed so bad a night that she was ill-prepared for the additional anxiety caused by a letter received from Frederick. Mr. Lennox was out of town. His clerk said that he would return by the following Tuesday at the latest, that he might possibly be at home on Monday. Consequently, after some consideration, Frederick had determined upon remaining in London a day or two longer. He had thought of coming down to Milton again. The temptation had been very strong. But the idea of Mr. Bell domesticated in his father's house and the alarm he had received at the last moment at the railway station had made him resolve to stay in London. Margaret might be assured he would take every precaution against being tracked by Leonard's. Margaret was thankful that she received this letter while her father was absent in her mother's room. If he had been present, he would have expected her to read it aloud to him, and it would have raised in him a state of nervous alarm which she would have found it impossible to soothe away. There was not merely the fact, which disturbed her excessively, of Frederick's detention in London, but there were allusions to the recognition at the last moment at Milton, and the possibility of a pursuit 
which made her blood run cold, and how then would it have affected her father? Many a time did Margaret repent of having suggested and urged on the plan of consulting Mr. Lennox. At the moment, it had seemed as if it would occasion so little delay, add so little to the apparently small chances of detection, and yet everything that had since occurred had tended to make it so undesirable. Margaret battled hard against this regret of hers for what could not now be helped, this self-reproach for having said what had, at the time, appeared to be wise, but which after events were proving to have been so foolish but her father was in too depressed a state of mind and body to struggle healthily. He would succumb to all these causes for morbid regret over what could not be recalled. Margaret summoned up all her forces to her aid. Her father seemed to have forgotten that they had any reason to expect a letter from Frederick that morning. He was absorbed in one idea, that the last visible token of the presence of his wife was to be carried away from him and hidden from his sight. He trembled pitifully as the undertaker's man was arranging his crepe draperies around him. He looked wistfully at Margaret, and, when released, he tottered towards her, murmuring, Pray for me, Margaret. I have no strength left in me. I cannot pray. I give her up because I must. I try to bear it. Indeed, I do. I know it is God's will. But I cannot see why she died. Pray for me, Margaret, that I may have faith to pray. It is a great strait, my child. Margaret sat by him in the coach, almost supporting him in her arms, and repeating all the noble verses of holy comfort or texts expresses of faithful resignation that she could remember. Her voice never faltered, and she herself gained strength by doing this. Her father's lips moved after her, repeating the well-known texts as her words suggested them. It was terrible to see the patient's struggling effort to obtain the resignation which he had not strength to take into his heart as a part of himself. Margaret's fortitude nearly gave way as Dixon, with a slight motion of her hand, directed her notice to Nicholas Higgins and his daughter, standing a little aloof, but deeply attentive to the ceremonial. Nicholas wore his usual fustian clothes, but had a bit of black stuff sewn round his hat, a mark of mourning which he had never shown to his daughter Bessie's memory. But Mr. Hale saw nothing. He went on repeating to himself, mechanically as it were, all the funeral service as it was read by the officiating clergyman. He sighed twice or thrice when all was ended, and then, putting his hand on Margaret's arm, he mutely entreated to be led away, as if he were blind and she his faithful guide. Dixon sobbed aloud. She covered her face with her handkerchief and was so absorbed in her own grief that she did not perceive that the crowd, attracted on such occasions, was dispersing, till she was spoken to by someone close at hand. It was Mr. Thornton. He had been present all the time, standing with bent head behind a group of people so that, in fact, no one had recognized him. "'I beg your pardon, but can you tell me how Mr. Ale is?' 
and Miss Ale, too. I should like to know how they both are. Of course, sir. They are much as is to be expected. Master is terribly broke down. Miss Ale bears up better than likely. Mr. Thornton would rather have heard that she was suffering the natural sorrow. In the first place, there was selfishness enough in him to have taken pleasure in the idea that his great love might come in to comfort and console her, much the same kind of strange, passionate pleasure which comes stinging through a mother's heart when her drooping infant nestles close to her and is dependent upon her for everything. But this delicious vision of what might have been, in which, in spite of all Margaret's repulse, he would have indulged only a few days ago, was miserably disturbed by the recollection of what he had seen near the outward station. Miserably disturbed? That is not strong enough. He was haunted by the remembrance of the handsome young man with whom she stood in an attitude of such familiar confidence, and the remembrance shot through him like an agony till it made him clench his hands tight in order to subdue the pain. At that late hour, so far from home, it took a great moral effort to galvanize his trust, erewhile so perfect in Margaret's pure and exquisite maidenliness, into life. As soon as the effort ceased, his trust dropped down dead and powerless, and all sorts of wild fancies chased each other like dreams through his mind. Here was a little piece of miserable gnawing confirmation. She bore up better than likely under this grief. She had, then, some hope to look to, so bright that even in her affectionate nature it could come in to lighten the dark hours of a daughter newly made motherless. Yes, he knew how she would love. He had not loved her without gaining that instinctive knowledge of what capabilities were in her. Her soul would walk in glorious sunlight if any man was worthy, by his power of loving, to win back her love. Even in her mourning she would rest with a peaceful faith upon his sympathy. His sympathy? Whose? That other man's. And that it was another was enough to make Mr. Thornton's pale grave face grow doubly wan and stern at Dixon's answer. I suppose I may call, said he coldly, on Mr. Ale, I mean. He will perhaps admit me after tomorrow or so. He spoke as if the answer were a matter of indifference to him, but it was not so. For all his pain, he longed to see the author of it. Although he hated Margaret at times, when he thought of that gentle, familiar attitude and all the attendant circumstances, he had a restless desire to renew her picture in his mind, a longing for the very atmosphere she breathed. He was in the Charybdis of passion and must perforce circle and circle ever nearer round the fatal centre. I dare say Master will see you. He was very sorry to have to deny you the other day, but circumstances was not agreeable just then. For some reason or other, Dixon never named this interview that she had had with Mr. Thornton to Margaret. It might have been mere chance, but so it was 
that Margaret never heard that he had attended her poor mother's funeral. Chapter 34 False and True Truth will fail thee never, never. Though thy bark be tempest-driven, though each plank be rent and riven, truth will bear thee on forever. Anonymous The bearing up better than likely was a terrible strain upon Margaret. Sometimes she thought she must give way and cry out with pain as the sudden sharp thought came across her, even during her apparently cheerful conversations with her father, that she had no longer a mother. About Frederick, too, there was great uneasiness. The Sunday post intervened and interfered with their London letters, and on Tuesday Margaret was surprised and disheartened to find that there was still no letter. She was quite in the dark as to his plans, and her father was miserable at all this uncertainty. It broke in upon his lately acquired habit of sitting still in one easy chair for half a day together. He kept pacing up and down the room, then out of it, and she heard him upon the landing opening and shutting the bedroom doors without any apparent object. She tried to tranquilize him by reading aloud, but it was evident he could not listen for long together. How thankful she was then that she had to keep to herself the additional cause for anxiety produced by their encounter with Leonard's. She was thankful to hear Mr. Thornton announced. His visit would force her father's thoughts into another channel. He came up straight to her father, whose hands he took and wrung without a word, holding them in his for a minute or two, during which time his face, his eyes, his look— told of more sympathy than could be put into words. Then he turned to Margaret. Not better than likely did she look. Her stately beauty was dimmed with much watching and with many tears. The expression on her countenance was of gentle, patient sadness, nay, of positive present suffering. He had not meant to greet her otherwise than with his late-studied coldness of demeanour, but he could not help going up to her as she stood a little aside, rendered timid by the uncertainty of his manner of late, and saying the few necessary commonplace words in so tender a voice that her eyes filled with tears and she turned away to hide her emotion. She took her work and sat down very quiet and silent. Mr. Thornton's heart beat quick and strong, and for the time he utterly forgot the outward lane. He tried to talk to Mr. Hale, and his presence, always a certain kind of pleasure to Mr. Hale, as his power and decision made him and his opinions a safe, sure port, was unusually agreeable to her father, as Margaret saw. Presently, Dixon came to the door and said, "'Miss Hale, you are wanted.' Dixon's manner was so flurried that Margaret turned sick at heart. Something had happened to Fred. She had no doubt of that. It was well that her father and Mr. Thornton were so much occupied by their conversation. "'What is it, Dixon?' asked Margaret, the moment she had shut the drawing-room door. "'Come this way, miss,' said Dixon, opening the door of what had been Mrs. Hale's bedchamber, now Margaret's, for— her father refused to sleep there again after his wife's death. 
It's nothing, miss, said Dixon, choking a little. Only a police inspector. He wants to see you, miss, but I dare say it's about nothing at all. Did he name? asked Margaret, almost inaudibly. No, miss, he named nothing. He only asked if you lived here and if he could speak to you. Martha went to the door and let him in. She's shown him into the master's study. I went to him myself to try if that would do, but no, it's you, miss, he wants. Margaret did not speak again till her hand was on the lock of the study door. Here she turned round and said, Take care, Papa does not come down. Mr. Thornton is with him now. The inspector was almost daunted by the haughtiness of her manner as she entered. There was something of indignation expressed in her countenance, but so kept down and controlled that it gave her a superb air of disdain. There was no surprise, no curiosity. She stood awaiting the opening of his business there. Not a question did she ask. I beg your pardon, ma'am, but my duty obliges me to ask you a few plain questions. A man has died at the infirmary in consequence of a fall received at Outwood Station between the hours of five and six on Thursday evening, the 26th instant. At the time, this fall did not seem of much consequence, but it was rendered fatal, the doctors say, by the presence of some internal complaint and the man's own habit of drinking. The large, dark eyes gazing straight into the inspector's face dilated a little. Otherwise, there was no motion perceptible to his experienced observation. Her lips swelled out into a richer curve than ordinary, owing to the enforced tension of the muscles, but he did not know what was their usual appearance, so as to recognize the unwanted sullen defiance of the firm's sweeping lines. She never blanched or trembled. She fixed him with her eye. Now, as he paused before going on, she said, almost as if she would encourage him in telling his tale. Well, go on. It is supposed that an inquest will have to be held. There is some slight evidence to prove that the blow or push or scuffle that caused the fall was provoked by this poor fellow's half-tipsy impertinence to a young lady walking with the man who pushed the deceased over the edge of the platform. This much was observed by someone on the platform who, however, thought no more about the matter as the blow seemed of slight consequence. There is also some reason to identify the lady with yourself in which case. I was not there, said Margaret, still keeping her expressionless eyes fixed on his face with the unconscious look of a sleepwalker. The inspector bowed, but did not speak. The lady standing before him showed no emotion, no fluttering fear, no anxiety, no desire to end the interview. The information he had received was very vague. One of the porters rushing out to be in readiness for the train had seen a scuffle at the other end of the platform between Leonard's and a gentleman accompanied by a lady, but heard no noise, and before the train had got to its full speed after starting— he had been almost knocked down by the headlong run of the enraged, half-intoxicated Leonards, swearing and cursing awfully. 
he had not thought any more about it, till his evidence was routed out by the inspector who, on making some farther inquiry at the railroad station, had heard from the station master that a young lady and gentleman had been there about that hour. The lady, remarkably handsome, and said by some grocer's assistant present at the time, to be a Miss Hale living at Crampton, whose family dealt at his shop. There was no certainty that the one lady and gentleman were identical with the other pair, but there was great probability. Leonard's himself had gone half mad with rage and pain to the nearest gin palace for comfort, and his tipsy words had not been attended to by the busy waiters there. They, however, remembered his starting up and cursing himself for not having sooner thought of the electric telegraph for some purpose unknown, and they believed that he left with the idea of going there. On his way, overcome by pain or drink, he had lain down in the road where the police had found him and taken him to the infirmary. There he had never recovered sufficient consciousness to give any distinct account of his fall, although once or twice he had had glimmerings of sense sufficient to make the authorities send for the nearest magistrate in hopes that he might be able to take down the dying man's deposition of the cause of his death. But when the magistrate had come, he was rambling about being at sea and mixing up names of captains and lieutenants in an indistinct manner with those of his fellow porters at the railway and his last words were a curse on the Cornish trick which had, he said, made him a hundred pounds poorer than he ought to have been. The inspector ran all this over in his mind. The vagueness of the evidence to prove that Margaret had been at the station. The unflinching, calm denial which she gave to such a supposition. She stood, awaiting his next word with a composure that appeared supreme. Then, madame... I have your denial that you were the lady accompanying the gentleman who struck the blow or gave the push which caused the death of this poor man. A quick, sharp pain went through Margaret's brain. Oh, God, that I knew Frederick was safe. A deep observer of human countenances might have seen the momentary agony shoot out of her great gloomy eyes like the torture of some creature brought to bay. But the inspector, though very keen, was not a very deep observer. He was a little struck, notwithstanding, by the form of the answer, which sounded like a mechanical repetition of her first reply, not changed and modified in shape so as to meet his last question. I was not there, said she, slowly and heavily. And all this time she never closed her eyes or ceased from that glassy, dreamlike stare. His quick suspicions were aroused by this dull echo of her former denial. It was as if she had forced herself to one untruth and had been stunned out of all power of varying it. He put up his book of notes in a very deliberate manner. Then he looked up. She had not moved any more than if she had been some great Egyptian statue. I hope you will not think me impertinent when I say that I may have to call on you again. I may have to summon you to appear on the inquest and prove an alibi if my witnesses. It was but one who had recognized her. Persist in deposing to your presence at the unfortunate event. He looked at her sharply. 
she was still perfectly quiet, no change of color or darker shadow of guilt on her proud face. He thought to have seen her wince. He did not know Margaret Hale. He was a little abashed by her regal composure. It must have been a mistake of identity. He went on. "'Tis very unlikely, ma'am, that I shall have to do anything of the kind. I hope you will excuse me for doing what is only my duty, although it may appear impertinent. Margaret bowed her head as he went towards the door. Her lips were stiff and dry. She could not speak even the common words of farewell. But suddenly she walked forwards and opened the study door and preceded him to the door of the house, which she threw wide open for his exit. She kept her eyes upon him in the same dull, fixed manner until he was fairly out of the house. She shut the door and went halfway into the study, then turned back as if moved by some passionate impulse and locked the door inside. Then she went into the study, paused, tottered forward, paused again, swayed for an instant where she stood, and fell prone on the floor in a dead swoon. Okay, I think Margaret deserves that swoon. You know, sometimes the swoons, you look at them and you go, really? I mean, I know, corsets and difficulty breathing and all that stuff. Right, I get it. I, I, th- I think she's allowed to own this one. I would have been terrified. Can you imagine? She's never watched CSI. She's never seen Law and Order. She's never, which, by the way, in our family we call Law and Ordover because my father-in-law and mother-in-law are both lawyers. So that's my little sidebar comment. But, right? I mean, Margaret's gotten caught. Somebody recognized her for real. And she's totally perjuring herself. I guess she's not really perjuring herself because she's not under oath. But, whoa, she's lying. She's lying through her teeth to a man and a professional and an officer of the law. And if an officer of the law is involved... Who else knows about this? Hmm. Oh, right. Mr. Thornton is the magistrate. So, uh uh-oh. And poor Mr. Thornton. Dixon didn't even tell Margaret. Now, hmm, do you think that was on purpose? Or do you think that's Dixon being forgetful? I don't know. I don't know that I have an opinion yet about that. But maybe you do, and you'd like to share. Let us know. Because Dixon's, Dixon's becoming an interesting character. She has been an interesting character for a while. Uh, but that, that one sin of omission I thought was interesting. And I loved the description of how Mr. Thornton was hoping that Margaret wasn't bearing up so well so that, so that it would be his love that could sustain her during her hour of need. But yeah, no, not so much because she's doing just fine. Thanks. Bye. And yet she's not. She's really not. This is, this has been a lot. This has been way too much for anyone. And, and I think a lot of us have been there in that position where you just kind of look at the sky and say, dear God in heaven, why this also? You know, one more thing. I cannot believe one more thing. But you do. You pick up, you keep going. And of course, the, the real news. <laughs> anyway, at the end of that 
is that we find out that the guy who was such a jerk died. Which is interesting because at first, when I first heard this chapter, read this chapter, I thought, mm, movie-wasting disease, little too convenient to have him die. And then I thought, no, actually, concussive head injuries being what they are, and what they are is really bad. I don't know if the information has gone anywhere outside of the United States because a lot of it has been in discussions of American football, not the rest of the world football, what we call soccer here. Because like the metric system, we just, we call it soccer and football. The end. So with American football, uh, there's been a lot of discussion lately about children playing and the concussive head injuries that these young men and and women, when they play, these young girls, um, can sustain. And when I was a freshman in high school, we had an we had an excellent football team. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that it was Friday Night Lights in Tucson, Arizona, and our marvelous coach, such a gentleman. His boys, such gentlemen. But there was a boy on the team who got a concussion. And he went out to play football that night. And the evenings in September in Tucson are nice and cool. The days are hot. So it wasn't that it was too hot or anything like that. It was a, a nice time to be outdoors playing football. But his his head injury was worse than they thought. And being soft tissue damage didn't exactly show up on the x-ray that he'd gotten. So he, he went out and he played. And it turned out he had a subdural hematoma. So under the dermal layer of skin, he had a swelling uh, next to his brain. And it killed him. And I, I think that was like my second month of high school. So the thing that correlates to this book and why I bring it up is it was hours hours and hours later when he died and he was absolutely fine until he just wasn't so it it totally doesn't surprise me that leonard's uh, hit his head uh, i mean he fell from 3 or 4 feet up and that if you fall and land on your head that's not going to be good for you or anyone who cares about you and uh, and it wasn't until hours later that he actually died and was walking around and talking and you know <laughs> trying to convince people that this had happened and they were having none of it because he was a horrible person the kid in, who played football at my school was not a horrible person though so that was very sad and we're we're working backwards from the end of the the chapters today what did you think about margaret at the train station going in buying the ticket these men are watching her she's all proud and i guess I thought that the guy who was kind of staring at her, that she interpreted as him thinking she was hot, was actually Leonard's eyeballing Frederick and her. I wondered if she would have recognized him even down in Halston. I don't know. You never really get a sense of whether she would have or not. Dixon certainly did. But then she's the one who picks up Frederick's bag and runs with it. You know, run, Frederick, run, get in the train. The door opens, she helps him get in, she hands in the bag, and and she's running in her shoes and a corset and probably a hat. Wow, what a woman. And then, you know, she's kind of overcome, probably at least in part because of the corset, and, and goes and sits in the, the ladies' waiting room. And I thought for the first time, 
having segregated space, space where the men weren't going to follow you, really paid off. That, wow, she needed that. And I love that instead of going and trying to hail a cab or anything like that, she's like, no, public transportation. I'm taking the train back. It's more lit. There are other people around. There's lots of other people around. Nobody can overtake you the way that they could on a horse if you were in a cab. She's a smart cookie. And I I think I, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall and see how uh, a Victorian woman would have responded to that chapter. And especially how a Victorian man would have responded to that chapter. I, w- I wish I could go back in time and see that. I would be fascinated to, to know. I mean, we've, I've read some reviews of the book, but they don't often zero in on uh, particular uh, m- moments. Um, they did some with Jane Eyre, which was interesting, but, but I haven't seen that so much with this one. I'm, I'm still reading, you know, more stuff. So maybe I'll come across something that I can share with you. And that is where we will end it for this week. Don't forget to go and visit the Moore's Bag site. And if you are interested in knitting little birdie nests, please go do that as well. If you have any insights at all into how to validate homeschool, high school diplomas for the rest of the world to satisfy them, I know we're all satisfied, but there is the outside world that sometimes we have to deal with. If you have any insights into that, know how it's been done in the past, or have any thoughts on the way that perhaps your business has dealt with this thorny issue, please, please, please either put a comment in the show notes for this episode, 352 at craftlit.com, or email me, heather at craftlit.com, and I will forward your response to our listener. Um, I'm not giving out her work email you know? So I will be the relay. I am happy to be the relay. Uh, Don't forget to go and click on the link at craftlit.com to go to Amazon to pick up Barbara Edelman's reading of Rachel Heron's new book. Don't forget to join the Moore's Bag Craftlit pod. And it's it's really, it's low-key. There's no requirement or any have-tos at all. Uh, but if enough people join, I will go ahead and order a, an, an entire roll of the Moore's Bags labels because it's shipping from the UK and it, it makes more sense if you're in the US and you want labels, why pay shipping yourself? I'll just get a bunch of them and it'll be much cheaper for us in the long run. And and I'll use I'll use donations to buy them. And that, that seems to be a perfect and wonderful use of donation money. And if you're in the UK, I imagine you can probably get these pretty cheaply yourself. If you live anywhere else, I have no idea. Is it cheaper for the UK to send mail to Australia? Or is it cheaper in the US to send mail to Australia? Do we go by mileage? I have no idea how this stuff is calculated. Hmm. But Moore's bags, oh yes, take a look at the video, join the pod. Please visit the Women in Podcasting link. They track their links, like everybody does, for search engine optimization reasons. And uh, if they see a lot of traffic coming from Craftlit, then they pay attention to Craftlit. And that is a good thing. Also, don't forget, there is a giveaway for the Stampington magazines. One 
issue of Stuffed, the most recent Stuffed, and two issues of Somerset Life, all available to you at the giveaway page, right at the top of the show notes. And that's it. Have a great week. I will talk to you next week. Take care of yourself. Have a good one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, like us on Facebook, or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 app. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content on the go. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.